invite you to Romans 11. We'll read verses 5 through 7 to begin with. And then we'll turn to Ephesians 1 and read verse 4. Romans 11 verse 5 reads, Even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Then Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, According as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We read verse 6 of Romans 11 last time as we spoke on the subject of salvation by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Today we wish to speak to you on the subject title from verse 5 of Romans 11, The Election of Grace. So chronologically, we're taking a step backwards from the sinner's experience of being saved by faith, salvation by grace, to the election of grace. So this is our starting point for salvation is election of grace. If there was no election of grace, there could never be any salvation by grace through faith. Because the election of grace is the foundation that precedes salvation by grace. I firmly believe that if we could hand the Bible to any objective reader, perhaps who had no religious leanings whatsoever or had never read or knew of the Holy Bible, asking them a question, is there such a doctrine as election taught and let them read the New Testament? I don't think any objective reader would deny that that doctrine is in the New Testament. In fact, it is not even debatable as to the existence of the doctrine of election. And we need not just read the New Testament, but we can read the Old Testament and also see that the doctrine of election is clearly taught in God's Word. Therefore, it is a reality. It is a doctrine that should be believed. To deny the doctrine of election without being too critical can leave us only two choices concerning those who would deny this clearly taught Bible doctrine. And I have run into both of these. Number one, a person may not believe the doctrine of election because they are just completely ignorant of it. I certainly was that way one time, and perhaps you were also. It was many years after I was saved before I learned of, was taught, and exposed to the doctrine of election. Another reason why people deny the doctrine of election is not because of ignorance, but because of prejudice. There is a natural prejudice against this. In other words, it goes against the human perspective or thinking of what can and cannot be or should be. 
And we should have, of course, if we are Christians, there should be no prejudice or bias concerning anything that is taught in God's Word. But people nevertheless have prejudices. And in spite of it being in God's Word, they refuse to believe or accept it. I have heard some very pitiful and sad excuses uh, on other doctrines as well as this doctrine as to why people would not believe it. I've heard someone say one time that, that Paul just had something against certain people and that's why he taught certain things. That's, that's totally outside the realm of submissiveness of a Christian to the teachings and the doctrines of God's Word. If this indeed is God's Word, then all Scripture is good. It is good for reproof and rebuke, and that's why some people are prejudiced against some of the things in God's Word, because it certainly reproves us, doesn't it? It sets us straight, and it rebukes us. And sadly, some people are both ignorant and prejudiced when it comes to this doctrine. So, if you know or meet of somebody in either of those camps or categories, pray for them that, that their eyes would be open to this blessed doctrine of the election of grace. Now, in our text here, we see that it speaks specifically of the remnant of Israel, as Paul wrote this, at that time concerning the election of grace. That salvation was by grace, based upon an election of grace, therefore it could not be of works if it was of grace, and in verse 7, that Israel did not obtain what they sought after, but election obtained it or accomplished it. And that is the beautiful thing about the doctrine of election, is that it accomplishes salvation. Election determines, and the grace of God through election secures all who believe. Many view election again for either the previous reasons given because they see it rather than opening the door to salvation a closing of the door and therefore people going to hell who would be saved the Bible doesn't teach that and that's not true we can make that very clear so election the election of a grace is the means unto salvation it is that which allows for salvation. It provides a way of salvation. It shuts not out any sinner or anyone. And as the text there in verse 7 says, it obtains what otherwise by human means could never be obtained. Again, a common objection to those who do not like this doctrine is that it is unfair. Well, God in His infinite wisdom, the Holy Spirit in giving us this book, knew before it was written what men would think and say about it. And we have that objection dealt with a page back in Romans chapter 9 and verse 14. Is it unfair, the doctrine of election? If election is unfair, then God is unfair. So both questions must be considered at the same time. 
Is there unfairness with God? Is there unfairness with the doctrine of election as taught in the New Testament? Romans 9 and 14 answers that based upon the election of grace in verse 13 which says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Here is the anticipated objection. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And unrighteousness with God is the equivalent of asking, is God unfair? Unfair in what? In loving Jacob and hating Esau. That is the specific point that the Holy Spirit makes here through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I sated. Malachi chapter 3 is where that is written. And then he says here, what is your response to that, basically? What shall we say then? Many say, I won't have it. Many say, away with such a doctrine where there is a God that would love one and hate the other, even of twin brothers here, Jacob and Esau. Is there unrighteousness or unfairness with God? And the answer is God forbid. In other words, impossible. If there is any unfairness with God, then God cannot be God. We trash the Bible, we trash everything we think about God, and we trash everything the Bible says about God. So the question is asked and the question is answered. There is no unrighteousness with God. God is God. We want to look at about three points at least in this concerning the election of grace. And we're going to take those points mostly from the text in Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 4. And from that text we will take the first point, He hath chosen. He referring of course to God. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. I mentioned to you last week in referencing some things here in this message that there is the address or precedent for what is said thereafter. All spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ that he has blessed us with. And where did we begin? According as he hath chosen us. Again, one has to just be ignorant or just absolutely prejudiced to deny the fact that God hath chosen a people for and to himself unto salvation. It is called unconditional election. We put the adjective there because God chooses based on no conditions whatsoever but according, as verse 11 says, to the good pleasure of his will. He does all things for himself. But he hath chosen. That is a fact. That is not debatable unless you just willingly want to refute the plain and clear teaching of Scripture. He hath chosen speaks of God's sovereignty. And many say and attribute that God is indeed sovereign, but then when you get into the teachings and doctrines of how God is sovereign, man says, well, God can be sovereign in this, but he can't be sovereign in this, because that's not fair. Either you take it all, or you take none of it whatsoever. And I would remind you that God is sovereign over and in and through everything. First point under he hath chosen would be this. God has the absolute right to choose. 
simply that he is God and he is sovereign. The problem with the unfair prejudice is men seek to take God whom the heavens cannot tame, whom the heavens and earth cannot contain, and confine him unto man's little standard of what is fair and what is not fair, what is right and what is wrong. It is indeed, as the scripture says, the putty trying to mold the potter rather than the other way around. A scripture that should put us in our proper place and allow God to be in his proper place when we come to the doctrine of election is the scripture in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4 which states very clearly and very plainly, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. I mean, the Bible says the cattle on a thousand hills are God's, right? The Bible says the host of heavens were created by God and for God and belong to God. And we affirm on the teaching of Scripture that everything that is is created by God for God and belongs to God. Of Him, through Him, to Him are all things. All things were created by Him and for His glory. So again, who are we to go to He who created it all, who owns it all, who possesses it all, and upholds it all by the word of His power, and to say, you can do this but not that, or this is fair and that's not fair. It's very puny to say the least. God has the absolute right. If I may direct your attention back one more time to Romans chapter 9. Some other verses there we see where it's clearly and explicitly stated that God has the right to choose. Verse 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? Or who hath resisted his will, the will of the sovereign God? Nay, or none, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? And this refers to any Bible doctrine. Don't reply in ignorance or prejudice against what God has clearly stated in His Word. Shall the thing formed, the creature, say to him that formed it, the Creator, Why hast thou made me thus? Do you have the right to question your Creator? Absolutely not. No one has the right to question God. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory. And this can go right back to the reference that we read in verse 13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, Rebekah had fraternal twins, 
in her womb. And the Bible says in verse 11, For the children not yet being born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. God has the right as God to do as God sovereignly pleases. And nothing created has any right to question what God has done in the sense that it could be wrong, immoral, unethical, or unfair. Secondly, what God chooses to do is always right. He not only has the right to choose, but when God does something as far as choosing or determining, it is always right. This is what we've referred to as righteous. The question was asked in verse 14 of Romans 9 there, is there unrighteousness with God? None so, none whatsoever, God forbid. That means God is righteous or does everything right every time in everything. Jacob being loved of God, Esau being hated of God, was right. Simply because God had the right to do so. Whether it is persons, whether it is things, God is righteous in all of his acts, in all of his ways, in all of his dealings with men. To those who may object to what has been said thus far, or may object or do not like, or is not willing to submit to Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated, we would put to you a much earlier choice that God made and ask you if you object to that. I hope there are no objectors today who hear me or will hear this. But I anticipate as there were objections to the Apostle Paul and others, there will be objections to what I've said today as it goes forth. And I would ask you this question as compassionately and caringly as I know how. In the book of Genesis chapter 12, we read verse 11 and 12. I said verse 11, end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. We read and of an elective choice of God of one man above all men who existed at that time. That man's name was Abram. And God made a covenant with that one man. Now I ask you today, was that fair? Was God righteous? In choosing one man who would be head of a race of people that they and only they for some periods of time with few exceptions God would know and have any dealings with. Again, God forbid. God has that right. He could have called some other man but he didn't. He called a man Abram. And he raised up of that man a nation whom the Bible refers to as his elect nation. His chosen people. So if you want or choose to deny the election of grace of sinners, 
To be consistent, you would have to deny also God's election of Abram and the chosen people. In fact, within the context, our text in Romans 11 is dealing with Israel. There is a remnant among Israel according to the election of grace, he said. The Bible says in other places, they're not all Israel that are of Israel. So again, election goes back much further than the New Testament. And it is clearly observed right there with Abraham. And I would also remind you the reference in Romans 9 of Jacob and Esau is just two generations past Abram. Jacob and Esau were Isaac's son. Isaac was Abraham's son. So third generation here. But you had election in first generation when God called Abraham specifically. What we must see in that and what I see in this is I am reminded that God's dealings in His election of grace, that His ways and His thoughts are so above ours, higher than the heavens, that, you know, we must stand in humble submission and praise and glory and honor to what He has done, knowing that it has been done rightly, accurately, and in infinite wisdom, while we know and see so little of what God has done and is doing except as he has revealed it. So he hath chosen, he has the right, and what he chooses is always right. The text says in Ephesians 1 and 4, he hath chosen us. Paul is writing to the saints at Ephesus in verse 1. So Paul is writing inclusive of himself of believers, the children of God, those who have believed those who are saved. So God's choice in election is of persons. It is of individuals, obviously, when he says us. Those persons are called in places the elect of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 speaks there of the believers as elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So those who are chosen of God in and by the doctrine of election are called the elect of God. As aforestated, the nation of Israel were the elect people or the elect nation. It is persons then who are chosen to salvation. Now, I want to make this point quickly before we press on. Election is not salvation. Those are not synonymous terms. But He has chosen us unto salvation. The scripture that makes this very clear is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul, again, the author here, says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, Beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Exactly the same words almost Peter said in chapter 1 and verse 2 according to uh, the elect and the means by which they were called and saved. So election is choosing unto salvation. Election does not save you, but election marks you. 
for salvation. Now, the verse says in Ephesians 1 and 4 that not only hath He chosen us, but He hath chosen us in Him. And Him refers to Christ in verse 3. Everyone whom God the Father has elected has elected them with reference to and as stated in Him, in Christ. In Christ. Now who is Christ? I realize that's a very trivial and elementary question, but Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father. He is the second person of the Godhead. He is, as His name denotes, the Savior of sinners. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And I would clearly state to you that when that verse, Matthew 1.21 says, He will save His people, He is referring to those who were chosen in eternity past. The elect of God. So when it says chosen in Him, that means that God the Father chose individuals with reference to their salvation, their redemption, their forgiveness for the substitution of Jesus, His Son, for their sins. So we were not chosen outside of Christ, were we? We were chosen in Christ. And that makes perfect sense when we realize that all of us in the fall were already outside of Christ. Let me remind you of that because this is where many people try to dilute the doctrine of election into something that it is not. Those who have a prejudice against it, and sadly I've seen this far too often, it's very sad They want to minimize the doctrine of election to the mere foresight of God. That God just saw what would happen and based on what He saw would happen in the future, therefore He elected and nothing could be further from the truth. That's to put the cart completely before the horse. I'll prove it by reading to you a few verses out of Psalms 53. Psalms 11, you might... Psalms uh, rather 14 it's also stated similarly <clears throat> the fool has said in his heart there is no God corrupt are they and have done abominable iniquity there is none that doeth good verse 2 God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand that did seek God every one of them is gone back they are altogether become filthy there is none that doeth good no not one Now I want to remind you as we read that verse we tend as humans to think okay if we put Bob there and say Bob looked down from the tree house and saw Sally on the ground we have a specific day or time when that occurred right? Bob looked down and saw Sally on the ground but when we're talking about God God doesn't look back and God doesn't look ahead God sees the beginning to the end and it's all in present time. So there was never a point when God did not look through the ages of time. 
okay? And we'll get into this a little bit more in the third point, but hopefully this will suffice for right here. If left to themselves, no one understood, no one sought God, no one would come to God, nobody in and of themselves would be saved. That's the testimony of Psalms 53 and 2 and also Psalms 14. Okay, so election is not God foreseen that men would believe by faith because men have not faith. But God seen there is none righteous, no, not one. They will not come unto me that they might have life. This is why we say election secures salvation. Election is unto salvation. Election opens the door for salvation. It closes the door upon no one who would otherwise be saved. None would be saved. In fact, we make this statement very clearly that if it were not for the doctrine of election, nobody would ever be saved. So, all are naturally outside of Christ, but election puts sinners who are outside of Christ in Christ. In Christ. And the very need of this is that God the Father chose these persons, the elect, and gave them unto the Son to redeem. That's what it means to be in Christ. This is clearly seen in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 37 and 39. John 6, 37, Jesus himself says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now here we see the reference of all that the Father giveth me is all that the Father hath chosen. All of the elect were chosen by the Father and given to the Son to redeem. That's what it means in Him. Chosen in Christ because He had given them to Christ to redeem. Christ being, of course, the Redeemer. Verse 39, This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which He hath given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. And in Sunday school we reference this, but I'll read it again. John 17 and verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. The as many as are those chosen by God the Father and put in the trust of the Son to redeem. That is the doctrine of election of grace. Further down in John 17, in verse 9, we read, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. They were God the Father's before they were entrusted to God the Son because God the Father did the electing and the choosing in a chronological sense. Down further, in verse 20 we read, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe 
on me through their word. Others that were given. Verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Not only does election mark out those for salvation, not only are they saved, as we read, election obtains it, but it is the very security by which we believe we're going to be in heaven. What did Jesus say? Father, I pray that they may be with me where I am. If it were not for the election of grace, no one would go to heaven. Let me make a final point. We'll move on to the last point. The last point I want to make on this point is Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20 tells us how this all transpires. This working within the Godhead for the Father to choose to give unto the Son and we won't go into but we will mention, however, the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit that will draw and quicken those who are marked for salvation, the elect. It all takes place in Hebrews 13 and 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. I simply have time to say here that a covenant is an agreement if it is an everlasting covenant and based upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, then again, it is a covenant that exists within the Trinity alone. God the Father chose, he gave to God the Son to redeem, which he did, and it is the role of God the Holy Spirit to quicken and draw those to Christ. And Jesus himself said, not one will be lost. I cannot put a numerical figure on it, and probably there may not be a number that big known to us, but let me assure you it is a number exactly known by God and there will not be one empty seat in heaven. There will not be one surplus dwelling place in heaven. It is an exact number as Christ has said. Every one that the Father hath chosen and given to me will be redeemed and obtain that salvation. The final point being, when did all of this occur? This is mind-boggling, but the text speaks of it, so we will address it. Ephesians 1 and 4 According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, when was that? Well, let me give you another scripture and let's combine the two. I mentioned it a while ago. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 again. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brother and beloved Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So Ephesians 1 and 4 says, from before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Thessalonians, and this is synonymous and harmonious, that God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Well, I would say to you that creation is the foundation of the world. Genesis 1.1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But let me put it in your mind like this, and I hope it makes sense. There was a beginning before the beginning. 
By that I mean the beginning was not creation. There was a beginning before creation. And that beginning was the choosing we're talking about. That election of grace took place before God created. And I'm not being tacky here and I'm not splitting hairs here. But I want to just bring it to your attention what is meant when it says the beginning. God has no beginning. God has no end. God is not limited by time nor by space or anything else as we are. And how do we record time? What is time? What is time according to the Bible? Well, we start in Genesis 1, do we not? And I will not labor this point. I'll try to be brief. In the beginning, God created. There's where time began to the human mind, right? What is it based upon? It's based upon an act of God. What is any time of anything based upon? Actions and events. Is that not right? I mean, if there were no actions and no events of any kind, then we wouldn't need no clocks. It is actions and events as they occur in an order or at random or however you want to label it that literally give us time. Well, before time was, what was there? There was only God. And there was... Again, forgive me for saying it, but for lack of word, there was a time when there was only God. But when God created, then time began as we know it. But actually there was time before that because the Bible says from the beginning, and God has no beginning, God chose. So you can't go in that infinite space, I'll put it that way, before God created and say at some time in that infinite space, God chose. You can't even say that. Because that would mean there would be a time when God didn't choose. And God has done all things from His very existence. He, he can't progress to anything. So as long as there's been God, if you're saved today, you've been chosen in Christ. That's the point to be made. And this point is very clear. It preceded God creating. And as I have often said, and I wish so much Christians could get this point, and I wish it had been taught to me much earlier than I learned it. Creation is a necessary means of redemption. It didn't start with creation. It started with the purpose to redeem that which had yet to be created. Now, I know that's mind-boggling, but that's the teaching of Scripture. So, from the beginning, and time as we know it, believing in this doctrine is marked by God choosing, even though we don't know when that was. <laughs> but it preceded creation. Okay, so I don't want to confuse your bog or your mind with it, but again, the Bible says, in the beginning and before the foundation of the world, that God chose. And I want to make this point that that choosing is being manifested as time progresses. 
Meaning just what Christ said in John 6 and 44. No man can come unto me except the Father, which has sent me, draw him. In every generation throughout human history, if we could record it, we could probably see where God has been calling out his elect. Now, I don't know. There could be a generation. There could be a time when God let a hundred years pass and didn't call anyone. I don't know. God knows. But as time proceeds, God is constantly calling His elect. And He's calling them by means of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. And now, through His New Testament churches, such as we. And He's going to call every one of them. Because Christ said He wouldn't lose one of them. God chose them. He gave them to Christ. Christ died for every one of them and them alone. Particular redemption. And that same number that God chose that Christ died for that will be called by the Holy Spirit and regenerated will inhabit heaven. And there won't be an empty chair and there won't be a surplus. A number known known to God. How do we know this? How do you prove that preacher? Well, the Bible makes it very clearly in the book of Revelation three times. I'll briefly mention it and we'll press on and wrap this up. That God not only chose, but God gave names to those whom He chose. In Revelation 13 and 8, we read this. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The idea again being as God chose, names were written and recorded of those whom He chose. 17 and 8 of Revelation similarly says, the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. One final time, Revelation twenty fifteen, great white throne judgment. Whosoever found, was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I don't know how anybody could argue with the fact that God chose and God wrote names down before the foundation of the Lord and God being God, immutable, His pencil has no eraser like man's does. When it's written by God, it's there and it's forever. There is no adding, there is no subtracting with God because our God does everything right. He does it right the first time. He doesn't change His mind. He is immutable. Therefore, whatever he wrote down from the beginning is going to be there in the end without any alterations in between. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10. I know my sheep and they're known of me. I call them by name. I've always thought a wonderful point may seem spurious to mention that, again, your mother, father, somebody else may have given you a name, but before they gave you that name, they were simply giving you the name, if you're a believer, that God had already written down in His book. Isn't that wonderful? We sang this morning, it is well with my soul. If you're a believer, it is well with your soul, because, you know, God named you before your parents or anybody else did. 
they only providentially took the name that God had already written down. Isn't that, isn't that a, a mind-boggling <laughs> thought? That before you were, He knew you? That's what the Bible says. Well, let's conclude with this thought. Someone may be asking, and this comes up many times, well, if what you're saying is true, how in the world, how do you know if your name's written down or not? How, how can I know if I'm one of the elect or not? How can I know if I'm one that God has loved or if I'm one that God has hated? The Bible has an answer for that. And it's not by peeking into the book. God will open the book in God's time. But God has been revealing whose names are in the book down through the ages. And it's very simply to very simple and easy to know. He said in John 6, "All that the Father giveth to me will what? Come unto me." My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. So the question is to you, if you wonder whether you be one of the elect of God, have you heard the gospel summons and have you obeyed it? The answer lies with you, not with me. Can you really know? Yes, you can really know. The proof of being a child of God, of being one of the elect of God, of having your name in the book of life from the foundation of the world is obedience to the gospel. Repenting and believing upon Christ. You say, are you sure? I am absolutely sure. Let me tell you, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 4, Paul told these people that he knew their election of God. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. He's referring to that election of grace by God the Father in the everlasting covenant, giving the elect to the Son in the beginning before the foundation of the world. Paul says, I know you're the elect of God. How could he know that? The answer is verse 5. Because when the gospel came unto you, you didn't just let it go in one ear and out the other. Oh no, it came with convicting power of the Holy Spirit and it broke you down and showed you you were indeed a sinner, hell-bound and deservedly so. And you repented of your sins. Say, don't say that in verse 5. It does in verse 9. You turn from God from idols to serve the living and true God, that's repentance and believing. And because of that, Paul said, I know you're the elect of God. And that's the only way any of us can know. The only validation by which you can say, I am one of God's elect, is your obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you know that, then you can rejoice in the election of grace. I close with this. You remember when Jesus sent out the apostles, then He sent out the 70? And they returned rejoicing, the Bible says, that even the demons were subject unto the power that Christ had given them.
And Jesus told them in Luke 10 and 20, don't rejoice just because you have power over the demons that they're subject unto you. But He said, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now I want to ask you, can you think of another scripture anywhere where Jesus said, rejoice in this? If you do, look it up and and study it. But here's a place where He said rejoice in this. If you're saved today, you ought to rejoice in the election of grace. That God in the beginning wrote down your name before you were and before you had a name. And it's in God's book. And if it's in God's book, you're going to be in God's heaven because God's got a reservation for you there. And the way you know that is by obedience to the gospel precious doctrine the election of grace I hope you know what I'm talking about today alright Cole if you will please